Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, this is Martina Navratilova, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. A couple of days after Novak Djokovic took his record this year to 78 and 5 defeats. Is it a big one? Charlie Eccleshare has been asking that on the Telegraph Sport website. Is the Big Four a thing of the past? Is it now a Big One? We'll discuss that here on the Tennis Podcast. He beat Andy Murray in the final yet again. 6-2, 6-4 this time. Murray now onto the clay at Queen's with the 0-2 on an indoor hard court just a few days away. So it's a very strange, unusual uh, system of preparing for the O2, isn't it, for Andy Murray at the moment? Venus Williams, aged 35, won the WTA Elite Trophy in Zuhai to move back inside the world's top 10. She's up at number 7 in the world now. We'll be talking about that. We'll also be answering your questions sent in via at Tennis Podcast, and we'll be hearing from John McEnroe, who played in his first Davis Cup singles rubber in the 1978 final, condemning Great Britain to defeat the last time that Britain were in the Davis Cup by BNP Paribas final. McEnroe remembers that on the Tennis Podcast and gives his predictions for the final between Britain and Belgium in a few weeks' time. First, though, Catherine Whitaker, safe to say that you and I have had very contrasting Mondays. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah, we were supposed to have very similar Mondays and it just didn't didn't quite work out that way. Uh, Yours was about 10,000% more glamorous than mine, David. You were. And enjoyable, yes. I, I was hobnobbing uh, with the great and good of tennis with Pat Cash and Tim Hemman and the tournament director of the Aegon Championship, Stephen Farrow. We all went down to this, the BBC studios for uh, the live Chris Evans breakfast show on BBC Radio 2, which has a, an audience of more than 10 million people. Every year they do an auction uh, for children in need, and we put together what is known as the All ultimate tennis package which gave people chance to go to the, the eight winning bidders if they bid enough money they would get to go to the albert hall for champions tennis uh, in the first week of december play on the albert hall court just as you and i did last year catherine and we know how good that is as long as you don't lose and also they get to have fantastic seats they'll get a backstage tour they get to go to queens later on next year and and take part in the official draw play in a pro-am do the coin toss the top two bidders would hit a few balls with andy murray oh my word and how about this catherine the ultimate part of the auction prize was that the eight winning bidders would get to put a question on the tennis podcast to john McEnroe. 
Yeah, that's How what, cool is that? That's what really reeled in the big bucks, I think. It was the prospect of having their name read out uh, on the tennis podcast. I mean, I think we are almost wholeheartedly responsible for the uh, £285,000 raised for a wonderful charity, frankly. £285,000, more than a quarter of a million pounds raised by tennis inside an hour, and the vast majority of it down to the tennis podcast. Absolutely right, Catherine Whittaker, well said. Uh, as we were saying, Catherine was meant to be part of this whole setup and helping to, to get the players where they need to go, but Catherine Whittaker didn't quite work out like that, did it? No, I had to ditch Pat Cash at the last minute. Sorry, Pat, if you're listening. Uh, no, I've uh, had a torrid couple of days uh, with a very ill-timed illness. Uh, back to almost fighting fit now. Uh, I mean, the the good news, though, David, is uh, I think it might be responsible for my speedy recovery. Sky Broadband have been in touch. I know everyone's been on the edge of their seat to know the end to the, uh, the Catherine Whittaker Sky Broadband saga. And uh, they've been in touch and offered me uh, some form of monetary reimbursement along with their uh, profuse apologies for what was a very traumatic Sunday without internet while uh, Nadal and Federer was going on. Uh, so, yeah, there there is a happy ending after all. Oh, well, there we go. Sky Broadband, almost back in the good books. Let's see if they actually come through. Catherine, the Paris tournament went, frankly, to form, didn't it? Novak Djokovic... Is just continuing where he left off. I, I, I was looking at his record for the year. Only once all year has he failed to reach a final. 14 out of 15 tournaments he's played, he's reached the final. It's, it's just getting more and more one-sided. It is, as Charlie Eccles share, said in the Telegraph Sport website, it feels like a big one now. It doesn't feel like a big four. Yeah, I think that was a very good article from Charlie uh, in the telegraph because he's he's bang right is there's more of a golf uh both on on paper you know the golf in ranking points is is as big as it's been uh, between the number one and the number two and in reality i think the golf between the number one and the number two is is, is far bigger than it's been in uh, recent history and i would include all of the dominant federer years in that um and i would uh, and that's entirely down to Novak Djokovic because I think the uh, the two, three, four and five are they, they haven't got worse. They're still extraordinarily good tennis players, as as good as if as good if not if not better as Federer's rivals were uh, back when he was at his peak dominance. It's just Novak Djokovic is head and shoulders better than them. And I, I'm desperate for someone to step up. I really I really, I would just love to see that credible rival to Novak Djokovic, and and maybe Novak Djokovic would too. Uh, well, I'm not sure he would. I think he's quite happy just putting the beat down on everybody in the world, frankly. Uh, but what I do think is, whereas I think people are starting to fear for 2016 and and a continuation of the monster year, as Brad Gilbert put it on the tennis podcast earlier this year, uh, that, that Novak Djokovic had in 2015, I actually am more intrigued by what the field will do about it in 2016. Because I think it's pretty rare that you get a player dominating for 12 months and then able to just do exactly the same thing the following year. I think that the, the, the field 
gets remotivated if anything and 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 is looking and always trying to figure out ways i think they even talk amongst themselves you know uh, how do we get past this guy i remember when leighton hewitt was world number one i remember they'd, P- they'd be stupid not to talk amongst themselves surely yeah well absolutely I mean, they, they share they share notes these players i remember tim hemman and todd martin at uh, queens one year when one of them got to i think the quarterfinals i think todd martin got to the quarterfinals and actually took a set off hewitt when hewitt was the dominant dominant grass court player he was winning the tournament year after year he won Wimbledon and I think that he he actually said to Tim listen what got me that set was throwing in inverted commas junk in the direction of Leighton Hewitt rather than hitting really good shots at him and powerfully struck shots you might be better off throwing all sorts of weird stuff at him because it might throw him out of his rhythm and and I remember him and actually gave that a go in the in the next round he actually admitted to doing that so I, I think that that will happen. I think that players are going to come out remotivated in 2016 to try to find a way past Novak Djokovic and derail him a little bit. Let's let's not forget that it was only a, a bloke of nearly seven feet tall who managed to actually stop him before a final. That was Ivo Karlovic in the first tournament of the year in Doha. But the the bigger question for me is, is there any danger, do you think, of Novak Djokovic suffering a little bit from a lack of motivation in 2016 given that he's dominating so much. I, I would be really surprised if that were the case. I really would. I, I know that, that that is something that can happen. Uh, I would just be extremely surprised if it happened to Novak Djokovic because he his motivation is records. His motivation is to be to go down in tennis history in the way that Federer will and the way that Nadal will uh, and, of course, many, many others before him. Uh, and And it's now... Within his grasp, amazingly, the monster year he's had in 2015 has suddenly elevated him from, you know, a, a very good um, sort of second string, you know, an Andy, an Andy Murray level player who will go down as having won a few Grand Slams, we don't know how many, to a genuine contender for one of the all-time greats. And what bigger motivation can there be than that? And I really think that's what gets him out of bed in the morning more than anything else at the moment. And why would that change in 2016? And there's been no sign of any kind of complacency from him. I mean, he's so far and away ahead of everybody else. You could forgive him a little complacency, especially at this time of the year when he's played more matches than any anybody else. And yet he still is showing up and playing as as well, if not better, than you, you, you at various other times throughout the year. I mean... I'm uh, dumbfounded by his level, really. And uh, yes, I think there will be a renewed challenge from the best of the rest. But boy, have they got a lot of ground to make up just at the moment. Uh, I have to say, Catherine, Twitter agrees with you. Because I, I put the question out at Tennis Podcast on Twitter. Is Novak Djokovic going to suffer any form of motivation loss the way that Chelsea football team have so far in 2015? This new season, Chris Fowler's team, who we had uh, from ESPN on uh, on the Tennis Podcast earlier this year. That's a simplistic assens- assessment of uh, Chelsea's woes this season, I would just like to add. I think there's more going on than lack of motivation, but... That's that's a discussion. That's a discussion for another podcast. I would it, say. it is. Andy says you're kidding, aren't you? 
I can see a calendar slam in 2016 for Novak Djokovic. I can see him topping Roger Federer's title, Whole Hall. He's that dominant. Uh, Kelvin says, no motivation loss for Djokovic in 2016. He has records in his sights. Timothy Cameron says, no chance. He wants to beat Federer's slam record and win the French. Uh, if anything, he'll have more motivation. The ultimate Serena Williams fan says, I doubt it. He'll be even more motivated. He hasn't won the French. He still has the calendar, uh, the career slam or the calendar slam as motivators. And finally, Hugh says, even my favourite media tennis account is talking about Chelsea. Can't look anywhere without being reminded how awful we are. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just... You're setting yourself up for that. If you if you if you insist on being a Chelsea fan, my friend, you've just got to accept the abuse <laughs> that comes your way. Other football teams are available with whom you will receive less abuse. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased that Twitter so wholeheartedly echoes my uh, my sentiments, and I do completely. I obviously agree with all of them and they agree with me how unusual yeah how unusual absolutely he is 16 to 1 i looked up the odds the other day to do the uh golden slam next year which would include the olympics of course which has never been done in the men's game it was done by steffi graf in the women's game in 1988 and and i think that does have to come with the caveat of, of the olympics was not what it is today in 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 tennis terms um so i I, 16 to 1 is i mean i i don't doubt that it's um accurate odds but that's extraordinarily short odds for what would be the biggest most monumental achievement in men's tennis that there has ever been yeah no absolutely Andy Murray, Catherine, got to the final, had a good week, beat David Goffin in what we were all billing as a rehearsal for the Davis Cup by BNP Paribas final. And uh, he found his way to the final pretty easily, as he has been doing a number of times this year, but also has happened, aside from one occasion in Canada earlier this year, ran into Novak Djokovic and just had no chance. Yeah, I have to say there, was, uh, there wasn't really any point in that match where I thought Andy Murray had a chance I'm afraid it was uh, yes he mounted he mounted some challenge at various points you know he rallied a bit in that in that second set to to break back but then Djokovic broke immediately again and it always had that feel it always had that feel of uh, I'm going to use the term David that's got me into trouble before it had the feel of a foregone conclusion about it i think yeah that that is a a phrase that catherine whittaker has until this point banned from her vocabulary and rightfully so i have to say um i was watching that match on replay that evening and trying to work out what is happening with andy murray here is it just that he's simply not as good as novak Djokovic? My, my conclusion was i mean given that he's beaten him nearly 10 times He obviously is capable of doing so, although I accept that this is a different Novak Djokovic to the one that we've seen in many of those matches before. My view is that they're very similar, and Novak Djokovic is just better at doing the things that Andy Murray typically does to everybody else. He's a better, slightly better mover. He has a a significantly better second serve. And as a result of all those things, and I think his... 
his mental strength is more consistent and, and, and the resilience is just extraordinary. As we, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't hurt himself when he gets upset. He actually improves, whereas I think sometimes Murray can hurt himself. But I think the big thing is when Nadal and Murray first started playing against each other, the same situation applied. The best of Nadal was better than Murray's normal disposition. And Murray had to take it to Nadal in a way that he didn't have to do that against anybody else. And I think we saw that, it was in Montreal, wasn't it, in that final where Murray was able to do that and knock Djokovic off the court, albeit a Djokovic that wasn't quite at the peak of his powers that day. And I think that that's really what it comes down to. If Andy Murray's going to beat the guy, he has to play like that. And, he, and the problem is he can't miss very much. Yeah, I mean, that's what I would put it down to. I, th- I think the most, the most significant actual technical difference in their games where Djokovic has a big advantage over Murray is that second serve it is better that's probably the one area where I'd say Djokovic is just better uh, and I think that affects mental resilience I think it's a you know there's there's that old adage which probably applies less in modern tennis than than it has done but you're only as good as your second serve uh, and if that's the case for Andy Murray, that's a that's a damning assessment because he does have one of the weakest second serves of anybody near the top of the game, I would say. And that's, of course, a testament to the rest of his game that he manages to overcome that. But I think the weakness of that second serve has an impact on the whole of your the rest of your game and how you know players approach it. You know, he misses his first serve and your opponents rubbing their hands together, thinking, "All right, I've I've got a chance here." Um, but but in terms of take that aside, and I would say the biggest difference is you know when they're both playing their absolute best, which we have seen on occasion this year. There were moments in that Australian Open final where they were both playing their best. I think they're pretty well matched. But Djokovic plays his best almost a hundred percent of the t- of the time, even in the pressure situations, in the biggest moments, whereas Andy Murray goes in and out of his best. You know, in that Australian Open final over best of five sets, he just couldn't maintain it. And for me, that's the biggest difference. When do you ever see Djokovic's level dip for more than a fleeting moment at any point? You know, even at this point in the season, when they must be mentally if not physically fatigued you still don't see his mind go for a wonder ever his focus doesn't wane yeah i I would agree with the vast majority of what you said there i I do recall during that montreal cincinnati period i remember you saying on the tennis podcast novak djokovic is not playing very well and the truth is by his standards you were right he wasn't yet he still reached the finals and and that's the difference as well even if he's some way short of his best, he's able to compete. His resilience, his competitive spirit, his his standard level is just still so high. He doesn't throw in dud performances. He, he might be some way off peak Djokovic, but, oh, goodness me, 90% Djokovic is good enough to beat the vast majority. Yeah, it, 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 I would just like to say his only dud performance of the year was against Ivo Karlovic in Doha, uh, his very first match of the year, and I, I watched that match live. I was in Doha. It was played practically during a sandstorm, uh, and I do think Ivo Karlovic with that serve. I mean, a serve was basically the only shot you could properly hit in those conditions. So, uh, I mean, the fact that that was 
probably the only dud performance and it was played in those sorts of conditions, I think, uh, says an awful lot uh, about Novak Djokovic's 2015. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, incidentally, Andy Murray now, we were talking about it, he's gone... Uh, as the tennis writers were saying, the ones that were in Paris that spoke to him afterwards uh, about his plans, he's going to go and practice on the clay. As he said, or as you were saying in the tennis podcast last week, and you have done on Twitter a couple of times this week, if he does feel the back or if he starts to feel some sort of injuries, he said himself that he, he then wouldn't play the O2. He, he fully intends to do that at the moment, to play that tournament, but he's going to play for a few days on clay. So a big few days coming up uh, for Andy Murray and in terms of how, how it goes over the next couple of weeks, I would expect, Catherine, overall that he will play both. I think he does look in pretty good physical nick and, well, just fingers crossed that he shows no adverse effects. I would too. I'm expecting him to play but Andy Murray is very um and and with with very good reason that he's he's very precious about his body isn't it you know in that in his uh semi-final against against uh David Ferrer in uh in Paris you know soon as things started to uh you know hit a bad shot or had a bad rally his reflex was to grab at his back and I don't think he was actually feeling his back maybe he was but it was almost just an instinct a couple of times he just went went for his back and then Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in, being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right sort of retracted his hand as if oh no so I was I was just checking that my back was okay so I do think you know if he feels the slightest thing the slightest twinge the slightest indication that that continuing to play or changing back to the hard courts might cause him further difficulties I don't think he's going to take that lightly I don't expect him to go oh well you know it's only I'm only feeling a minor twinge um I would expect him to respond quite seriously to 
anything of in that direction so it all just i think it just i mean these are the critical moments as as we're speaking we understand he's hitting with Ali Ashbedene, I understand, uh, on the clay courts at the Queen's Club just down the road from me. So these are the crucial moments. We will know in the coming days what is to be the fate of Andy Murray at, at the O2. And I'm sure the tournament organisers and uh, everybody with a vested interest, the BBC and Sky Sports, are very much on the edge of their seats. And, uh, and another critical uh, element to all this is whether Ali Ashbedene has his appeal successfully going in his favour in terms of trying to overturn the, uh, the the verdicts of the ITF in not allowing him to play for Great Britain in the Davis Cup currently. Because if it does get overruled, then he would become, in theory, available, even though he has said that he might find that a bit awkward, uh, given that he hasn't played any of the ties to get to that point. Although, Catherine Whitaker, we should also remind that John McEnroe didn't play any of the singles rubbers in the lead up to the United States getting to the Davis Cup final in 1978 and we can hear from John McEnroe about that now because that was the last time that Great Britain were in the Davis Cup final and John McEnroe remembers it well. Well I had played my first match in Chile in doubles only and then I was passed over to play the semi-final match when we beat Sweden where Bjorn actually played. And I had actually beaten Dion for the first time um, in 1978, uh, just a couple months earlier. Um, but I think it was just after maybe the Davis Cup at that time. And so I was disappointed that I wasn't picked to play singles in the semis. And it was sort of, a, you know, I was still just 19 in December of 78. Um, I don't recall ever even being to Palm Springs, uh, where, where we played the event and, uh, at the Davis Cup final. And, um, it was uh, a bit of a, I guess, a risk, you could say, uh, that uh, Tony Traber picked me to play captain. But I sort of come into my own the last few months of that year and had won a, a three or four events at, towards the end of the year. So I was finally starting to play the type of tennis that I felt like I was capable of. And it just everything sort of just seemed to work, like, perfectly for me um, for whatever reason that I don't can't explain because I didn't have – I rarely played Palm Springs in the future. I didn't feel like I had success there, and I didn't like the dryness and the dry heat and uh, having to go indoors, outdoors. So for whatever reason there, my game like, clicked perfectly, and it was like I was in sort of the zone when I played Lloyd and Matram. And I think Matram had ended up actually beating Gottfried in the second singles match. So it was actually one all after the first day, and... So it was still competitive when I played uh, Matra in the final match. And it felt like um, I, wish I, I wish everything had, it w- could be that easy. I look back because I only lost like 10 games in two matches, I think. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Maybe Britain will win this one. Turns, turns out it's not always that easy. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Do you think we'll win this one? Uh, you know, to me, um, Great Britain should win. You know, I think it's, uh, it's set up like, I, you know, obviously Murray, you know, there's going to be some pressure, but the way he's operated with Australia, that's the way it's going to pan out to me the, the next time, you know. I mean, he's going to win two singles, and um, and it would be sort of nice if uh, he was able to do it one more time with his brother. Um, so um, definitely going to be the favorite. It's a little harder when you play on the road, but uh, I, I, I pick Great Britain. Um, well, you see, it depends who they play the other match, but even the second singles, 
you know, they got an outside shot at winning that. So, you know, to me, they should win that eight out of ten times. So, John McEnroe, Catherine, reckons that Great Britain are firm favourites for the Davis Cup final by BNP Paribas. I think we would agree with that. I think most people would agree with that, but he seems really sure. Yeah, there are a few people out there that are really sure, that really really uh, have an awful lot of confidence in it. I don't have quite the same conviction. I do, I do think GB are heavy, heavy favourites. And uh, I found David Goffin's comments after his annihilation by Andy Murray in Paris. I found those comments a bit bizarre. He said he sort of walked onto the court defeated uh, and he knew it was going to be the last match of his season and and in his head he didn't give himself any chance against Andy Murray. Well, either those, I put it out on Twitter, either those are extremely complex mind games or that was a very uh, naive, rash thing to say in post-match press, which is entirely possible and justifiable given what an absolute thrashing he'd just experienced. But I did find that a bit bizarre. You know, he's there, David Goffin is unquestionably going to have to win both his singles matches I think uh, to to give Belgium any chance in that time for him to so which would mean of course beating Andy Murray so for him to come out of that match and and say well I, I went into it not thinking I had a chance of beating Andy Murray I found um, highly bizarre I have to say. That's not necessarily true though is it Catherine because if he were to lose against Andy Murray, win his his other singles match and the second player on Belgium's team win their singles match and Belgium win the doubles, they could win that tie. They could. That's not how I see it going though. I, th- I, I, I think David Goffin needs to beat Andy Murray on the clay in Belgium uh, and no doubt it will be very different. I don't expect any 6-love or 6-1 scoreline but uh, Andy Murray is is the favourite for for that match, regardless of surface or you know crowd support. But uh, David Goffin needs to be going into that match with Andy Murray, thinking, "I can win this, and I need to win this for my country." And what he yeah, said, he, he needs to be thinking that. But I think he, I think Belgium's chance is much better of winning the other two rubbers and the and the doubles. Possibly, although Ali Ashbedene up against Steve Darcy's. Bedene is is a a very, very outside chance of even playing. Yeah, but I mean, even James Ward up against Steve Darcy's. I mean, you know, it's there. The the rankings golf there is is not much at all. I mean, hang on a second. uh, We spoke in the week and I I thought the chatter was that Ali Ali Ash Bedene, it was looking more likely with every day that goes by that he would win that appeal if he wins that appeal how can you not pick him how can you not pick your highest ranked second player to play i know it would be awkward well it's it's it is a two-pronged approach here first of all he hasn't won it yet so he's got to win that first and and i would say that that is 50 50 at best personally in terms of his chances of, of winning that appeal because it is no foregone conclusion to use that expression again but there's there's a lot to be, to go through in order for him to actually win that appeal then he's got to be be picked so there's, there's two elements to that uh, I, I i don't think you can count on Aliash Bedene being part of that final field he might be 
but I, I, I wouldn't guarantee it. And, and therefore, you, and if you are then saying that you think that there's more chance of David Goffin beating Andy Murray than there is of Steve Darcy's beating James Ward, I disagree. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. Maybe I, maybe I should row back a little. But do you not yes. think... Yes! Do, do you not think... You're, you're avoiding commenting on uh, David Goffin's post-match comments last week in Paris. What did you make of those? I mean... Okay, even if he doesn't necessarily have to be Andy Murray in that Davis Cup tie, he can't be going in with anything like the mentality that he hinted at in in those post-match comments. No, I... I agree with that. I think he needs to go in with a positive frame of mind and, and I think you obviously need to try to win the match and feel good playing the other one as well. But I don't necessarily read that much into it. It's the end of a season. It's it's indoors. It's not on clay. I think he will be... And, and the thing is, it was interesting going on Twitter afterwards and the amount of... Uh, dismissing of David Goffin after that result just because he lost heavily in that match. I can't see it going anything like that in the Davis Cup final. I think Goffin will be a completely different animal. I think Andy Murray, if it got to a final day, he will have a lot of nerves to deal with. He will have a very fatigued body to deal with. I still think he's the favourite. I still think he would win. But it would not just be, oh, Andy Murray's number two in the world. He's up against David Goffin. He looks about eight years old. No problem. I I just don't buy it. Well, I, I do agree with you there. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back because I think you. I mean, I I know that it's still a hypothetical, and and you're right that there's we're a long way from it being a foregone conclusion that Ali Ashbadani will win that appeal. But we love to deal with hypotheticals on the tennis podcast, David. So I, I am gonna make you let's let's just for a moment assume he wins it. Do you pick him? Come Ooh, on. That, that's a good question. Do I pick him? Um... Ah, that's a very good question. I think if, I mean, honestly, I think if Andy Murray's all right with it, you pick him. How could Andy, do you think there's a chance Andy Murray wouldn't be all right with it? No, I think Andy Murray would be all right with it. And I think I would pick him based on that because he he is... I can tell you he wouldn't be all right with it. Well, there's plenty of people who wouldn't be all right with it. James Ward, uh, Dan Evans, uh, Carl Edmund, none of them would be all right with it, would they really? I mean, let's be honest, I'm sure they'd all want Great Britain to win. But would you be all right with it? I would be completely annoyed with it, even if it's understandable. I'd be incandescent. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is, if I was Leon Smith, and as long as I could be assured that my number one player was, uh, was, was backing that decision as well, and that the double team were okay with it I, I'd go with the guy most likely to win that second singles rubber which is exactly what he did by picking Dan Evans in that uh, tie against uh, Australia a couple of a few weeks ago well there you go Leon David Law has spoken but what's it got to do with me and also I still think that, that it is very much up in the air about whether he will win that appeal I mean I have no inside knowledge other than the fact that I'm I'm sure it is not just straightforward um, so anyway, we will see. It's, it's another intriguing pot boiler, isn't it, that we just have to uh, uh, look forward to see what happens with that. Now, uh, just before we go, Venus Williams, Catherine, I, I can't get over how, how impressive what she has done yet again this year has been. 35 years of age, 21st year as a tennis professional, and she's, I mean, you, you talked about it, in, her being in Singapore, just waiting around to see if she got in as an alternate. That, that's how she spent her week. And then she goes off to Zuhai and she's playing players like Karolina Pliskova in the final. You know, top players. And she beat the lot. She won the title. Number seven, seven in the world. She is 
amazing. She is absolutely amazing. She's an in- inspiration to sort of swathes of women and men everywhere. I think she's the oldest player to feature in in the top ten since Martina Navratilova, who was thirty eight. And in the top 10 uh, in 1995, I'd be surprised if Venus was still around in three years. But hey, I'd have been surprised three years ago if you told me in three years time she'd be back in the top 10. So, I mean, she surprises everybody in the best possible way. I think it's such a shame that she didn't jump into that top eight in time for Singapore. Because I think it was it was seemed such a waste of everything that Venus Williams brings that she was there and yet couldn't couldn't play you know it's it's a tough gig being an alternate they have to be on site warmed up and ready ahead of every group stage match ready to step in at you know up to a moment's notice it's not like you're just hanging around having a holiday in Singapore and and maybe you'll get get the call it's uh, it's a really tough gig she plenty of people turned down being an alternate and uh, it's not like she hasn't been there and done it all before I'm sure the fact that she was playing in Zuhai the next week was an incentive for her to stay in that part of the world but I mean unfortunately we don't hear that much from her anymore do we which is understandable because you know she's been speaking to the media for the last 21 years of of her life but I'd love to hear a really, really in-depth interview that properly gets under her skin to really understand where she's getting the motivation from because I'm I'm amazed by it. I'm constantly amazed by it, and I think she's incredible. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I have to say, if I could have one tennis wish for 2016, it would be for her to win another Grand Slam title. Oh, that I mean, who wouldn't rejoice in that? It would be... Amazing. Wimbledon 2016 could happen, could happen. All right, done. Catherine Whitaker and I have decided here on the Tennis Podcast. A couple of questions just to finish off with Catherine because we are nearly out of time this week. We've got a corker here from Ali who says, who wins a slam first, Jamie Murray or Dominglot? Jamie Murray, I think. Dominglot's starting to put them together now, isn't he? He's going to get some results. He's going great guns, but Jamie Murray, of course, uh, will be playing with a new partner next year, which is going to be interesting. I mean, he's not always adjusted to change in, changes in partners that well. And I suppose Dominglot is well bedded in now with uh, with Robert Linstead. So, I mean, I don't think... I'd, I'd, I'd certainly think Dominglot's in there with a shout, and it's great to see him doing so well. Why has Jamie Murray stopped with John Pierce? That is a strange one, isn't it? We didn't get a chance to discuss that the other week. Here he is. He's had the... One, basically the best year of his career he's got to the O2 and he's stopped playing with John Pierce. I, I imagine it's something to do with the fact that those two Grand Slam finals didn't go particularly well yeah I mean I uh, I interviewed Jamie Murray and John Pierce after that defeat in the US Open uh, final and I have to say the body language was not great it didn't feel like a sort of mutual it didn't feel like there was a no blame policy uh in in place if you like uh which i i would guess there sort of has to be in order for a for a doubles team to survive crushing crushing defeats you know if you start blaming one another i don't know if there were recriminations behind the scene i i just know that at the time i did have in the back of my mind this doesn't look like a a partnership doesn't look like the sort of 
partnership you'd expect from players that are, are really going from strength to strength on the court. It didn't look quite right off the court. You know, when one of them was speaking, the other one was looking in in any other direction than at his partner. And when they were walking down the corridor to come to press together, they weren't walking together. They were very much separate. So uh, as much as it might come as a surprise, having seen how well they, they've been doing on the court, for me, I did have in the back of my mind that, uh, that that could be a decision that that was that was coming. I would just about go with Jamie Murray as well because I think Bruno Suarez is a very very good doubles player. Whether they gel is another matter, and certainly as you said, Dominglot and Robert Lindstedt have been an extremely good partnership. Uh, we'll just do one more question. We have got loads of them here, but we're not going to get time for them all on this edition of the tennis podcast. So we'll try to get to them on another occasion. Uh, we have one here from Tevon who says, as a Renka and Murray. Both have failed to win a Grand Slam title now since 2013. Do you see them winning another one before they retire, Azarenka and Murray? I, I think they both should. Yes, I do. I think Azarenka... Will they? Will they? Yes, I think they both will. There you go. I, I agree. Which one's uh, going to win which? I, th- I mean, I think Azarenka is, has a good shout pretty much anywhere I mean I wouldn't rule her out for the Australian Open she's always played well there she just needs to to put it all together I know this year's been a been a tough one earlier she actually did an extremely honest uh very revealing interview I think it was with ESPN in the week talking about you know her changes in coach this year and and how she struggled to be struggled with being you know outside the seeded position she she's been that dangerous lurker in the draw for the for the whole year and I'm sure that was a a great novelty to start with but she needs to get herself back in that top 10 she needs to be a top seed for the grand slams so she doesn't have to keep playing these big blockbuster matches in the second round as great as it is for us spectators to see Azarenka Wozniacki or whatever it might be in the second round of a slam she needs to be saving herself for the latter stages and if she can just chip away and get back up there she absolutely should be winning more slams yeah indeed I I, I agree with you they can frankly both win all of the slams if things go their way but I do feel that in Murray's case he probably needs Djokovic to, to run into somebody else or because he, he's he's played him a number of times now in big finals, big Grand Slam finals, and he's given him good matches, but he just hasn't been able to outlast him. Um, so you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, and it is going to be all happening in 2016. I think we're in for a cracking year. Still got plenty more of this year to come as well. We've got the O2 ATB World Tour final starting this weekend. Following that, we've got the Davis Cup by BNP Paribas final in Bel. Belgium. Then we've got the Champions Tennis at the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, Catherine Whittaker, it is all happening. Now, do try to get through a week without getting ill, will you? I make no promises. It doesn't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be in my hands, but I will do my very best, David. I'll wrap myself up in cotton wool just for oh, the tennis oh podcast. How's that? Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to everybody listening to the tennis podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph. We'll speak to you soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Um...